Hello there, this is Rami back for another episode on the Bonfires of Social Enterprise. We have author Kathleen Kelly Janice as our guest discussing her new book, Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. Kathleen's an award-winning social entrepreneur, a lawyer, and a lecturer at Stanford University, where she teaches on social entrepreneurship. And, as usual, we have a great Detroit artist playing a full song at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Now, before we get rolling down the lane with great advice from Kathleen, let's see what Natalie has come up with for our fun fuel for this episode. I'm Natalie Hazen, and I'm bringing you this episode's fun fuel. Since this episode talks about nonprofits not operating on survival mode, I started thinking about what survival mode really means, and of course my mind drifted to really cool animal survival instincts. Survival instincts are inherent to all creatures, great and small, and I often wonder how animals survive natural disasters such as wildfires and tornadoes. I think of the birds being whipped around by such high winds and wonder if they get swooped up in the turbulence or soar higher. According to ToughsNow.com, birds can ride out these intense storms by taking advantage of microhabitats. Gale force winds can knock even the sturdiest of TV weathermen off their gate, but birds can seek shelter on the lee side of trees or deep inside thick hedges. The decrease in wind speed in these microhabitats can be huge, and as long as they stay put, they are not actually buffeted much by the wind. Now they do need to find food to last out the storms. And there are some reports of birds increasing foraging activity as a storm approaches, which indicates some birds can detect subtle changes in air pressure, which can indicate an approaching storm. So when this happens, they immediately try to get as much food as possible. The more fat a bird has, the better chance it has of surviving and riding out a long-standing storm. So let's join up with Rami and today's guest to learn more about nonprofits not operating on survival mode. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you, Natalie. Alrighty. I had the opportunity to talk with Kathleen while she was in San Francisco preparing for her book launch. I mentioned earlier that Kathleen's a lecturer at Stanford, but she's also a co-founder of Spark, among other human rights organizations. She informally advises a variety of nonprofits and social entrepreneurs in San Francisco locally and then more globally. Let's drop in on our conversation and learn more about Kathleen and her great new book. So what prompted you to um, start to write a book on how to scale? Well, this is a really critical question, as you know, Rami, and I, I think that it, it can be kind of a controversial uh, word, like a four-letter word <laughs> in, in yeah. the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector, um, because I think a lot of people would say that scale isn't necessarily a good thing for a number of reasons. Maybe we don't want big organizations. Maybe we want a lot of organizations working together. Um, and, you know, maybe we want more mom and pop organizations that communities know best how to solve the problems of individual communities. And uh, scaling isn't necessarily going to be effective. Something that works in San Francisco isn't necessarily going to work in uh, the middle of Iowa. Um, 
all of that is true. And also, um, we do have so many organizations that have really, really great ideas to scale and to grow, to expand their impact. And so the problem is that of the 300,000 nonprofits in the United States, two-thirds of them are $500,000 and below in revenue, constantly struggling to make the next payroll when what they really should be focused on is making impact. And so I wrote this book because I was really curious, who are the organizations that are getting over this revenue hump? What are the ones that are getting to say around $2 million, which I define in the book as getting to a level of sustainability where you're not constantly kind of teetering on the brink of collapse as an organization. Yeah. And, and, and I got to interview over a hundred of the top performing nonprofits in the United States in order to try and get to the bottom of that question. And so those are the findings that I feature in my new book, Social Startup Success. Wow. Well, I'm glad you just hit that head on because I'm delighted with the idea of scale just for all the reasons you said. And there's just efficiencies, partnerships can happen in the ecosystem when you've got successful organizations instead of those that are, I think you said in your introduction, spending more energy trying to just stay alive than delivering their social mission. I think I think we bump into them here in the Midwest and the Detroit area left and right. The, and the donor fatigue and the staff fatigue is so high, they are about to collapse. So I was delighted when I saw the word scale because I don't know, I'm sort of a practical in the weeds gal and at the street level and we see the reality of what's going on. Absolutely. And scale doesn't have to mean that you're a $50 million organization in the nonprofit sector. It's interesting. In fact, only 140 nonprofits that were started since 1970 have actually scaled past $50 million. And those are the big organizations that we think of like Teach for America and, um, and those organizations are doing important work. But the reality is that the vast majority of organizations will never get to that level of scale. So when we talk about scale, I'm not talking about scaling past, you know, millions and millions of dollars of revenue. I'm really talking about how do we get organizations to a level of sustainability? Right, right. Keeping the doors open. First rule of sustainability. (laughs) (laughs) First rule. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's step back for our listeners and and talk about your role right now with Stanford and your history with Spark. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Would you mind taking us on a little tour of your uh, work life and your history there? Absolutely. Well, I think like most people, I'm an accidental social entrepreneur. I didn't intend to go out and start a nonprofit. I always felt passionate about giving back to causes that I cared about. And so when I started working as a corporate lawyer in San Francisco, I wanted to get involved in nonprofits and didn't find one that was really engaging and harnessing the spirit of young people. And so we started Spark as a way to engage 
young professionals, millennials, and new forms of philanthropy to support gender equality issues. So at that point, I was spending my days billing corporate legal hours and spending my nights uh, making name tags and guest lists and, and sending out, um, you know, grant reports and, and, and working on building this nonprofit spark. And so that was really, for me, the first opportunity where I felt like I could be an activist and claim that and be, um, a, a leader in the social justice movement, even though I was a young professional, uh, in the corporate sector too. And I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about being alive today is that our work giving back doesn't have to be relegated to after five when we leave the office, that there is so much more opportunity to be involved in social causes, whether you're working at Goldman Sachs or in a law firm um, or for a nonprofit or a social enterprise. And so, I started teaching at Stanford as a way to evangelize that message. I quit my job as a corporate lawyer and I started, you know, working in human rights work and social entrepreneurship. And in my class, I often get students who ask me, you know, should I go work for a nonprofit or should I go make some money and then give back later? And it turns out that it doesn't have to be an either or thing, that you can give back no matter whether you're 25 years old or you're 65 year old millionaire, that there are opportunities to give every space in between. And so that's one of the issues that I've become most passionate about as I've written Social Startup Success is thinking about how can we all have tools to be able to be more effective with the resources that we're spending on social causes so that we can be more efficient at solving these really pressing social problems like global poverty and climate change. The clock is ticking on these issues and we need to be effective and efficient if we want to make a dent. I love this idea that you're talking to, talking about here, um, that the book is kind of launched from this student question. We get that a lot. We have students from around the globe reaching out to us asking those same questions because we're in in the space here and and I often get the sub or the follow-up question of well what if I want to work for this company but they don't have these types of programs how am I gonna feel and my opportunity is to say is always well here's your opportunity to start something and and put something in place that will be a legacy for those that follow behind you. It's not always a, what can you do for me? And is the, is your gonna, company going to fit my giving pattern? It's an opportunity for you yeah. to create yeah. a way to give that's unique to you. Cause there's probably someone else that will follow you that will enjoy your, you know, your, your path making, yeah. if you will. I love that, Rami. And, you know, companies have no choice but to institute social cause programs into their work. The evidence shows that 85% of millennials specifically accept a job at a company because of their work in X cause. Um, so this is really important data when you're looking at some of the turnover at major tech companies, for example, 
the average tenure is a year and a half. Um, and this is really, really expensive for companies to lose employees. So if you can generate loyalty by starting social cause programs, opportunities to volunteer, to give a certain uh, number of your hours um, to nonprofit work, to um, do donation drives, um, whatever your program might be, you're ultimately going to have a happier workforce and a much more um, effective company too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we stray off down another path, I want to get back to your great book here. Um, as we mentioned, I'm like most of the way through it. And uh, thanks for sharing it with me ahead of time. I just love so many of the basic functional things you talk about in the book. And you talk about you have this feel in your book and your writing of like, it's okay to fail a little bit. It's okay to test. It's okay to experiment. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that related to some of your findings when you were out talking to all these nonprofits that have done things well. Well, testing is critical and something that nonprofits and for-profits can all learn from. And I think that we have, we now live in an age where, uh, human-centered design has become more common in the workplace. This is just this idea of using customer-facing uh, mechanisms to test out proto prototypes in, in sort of low-cost ways that you can then perfect before you scale. And when, one of the most interesting findings from all of my interviews is that nonprofits are doing this kind of testing, too, in small ways. And for nonprofits, it's really critical, particularly in the early stages of development, because they don't necessarily have a lot of resources. Sadly, there's not a lot of seed funding for social enterprises. And so this testing process becomes a way to both try and figure out what kind of program is going to work to develop a, a really close relationship with your end users, your customers, your beneficiaries, and also to develop the data so that when you go out and raise money for your cause, you can say, look, this is working and I have some impact to show for it. So, for example, um, and it doesn't have to be a really expensive um, or fancy. An example that I talk about is Beth Schmidt, who founded Wishbone, was a teacher in a low-income school and realized that her students weren't getting the same kind of opportunities that so many of their more privileged counterparts were getting to follow their dreams during the summer. So she assigned them an essay to talk about their passion. She went to a photocopy machine. She photocopied some of the top papers in the class and she sent them off to her family and friends and she thought what if I could get people to pay for low-income students to follow their dreams her family and friends came back with thousands of dollars to fund these kids for art camp and uh, film fellowships during the summer and then she was able to go back to those donors and tell them about the stories of these kids and the impact that these summer experiences had had on their lives. And so it was then that she realized, okay, look, I have this idea. This is really, it's really impactful for the donors. It's really impactful for the students for all of these reasons. And she was able to go out and raise a whole bunch of money because she had done this low cost prototype in the start. And so this is an example 
of what that kind of testing process might look like for an organization that again it doesn't have to be expensive and it's critical because it develops this sense of being okay with understanding when things fail but that's another part of the testing process that we are not so comfortable with in the nonprofit sector because we have to go out and raise money. And so it's not, there's not a lot of incentive to talk about where we're failing. And yet no one's going to be effective in the long run if they're not able to acknowledge not only what's working, but what's not working. Right. No one's going to have all the answers right out of the gate. No, no. And what's, what's interesting is that this testing process becomes embedded within the DNA of the organization as they grow. So it enables them to constantly be improving as they, as they grow into scale. You know, you touched on something that um, is one of my, I'll call it nerve points. I'll probably have to come up with a better word for that, but when, which I, which I love you hit on this, there's that concept testing that's just talking about the theory of what you want to do. And then there's that testing where you're really trying something and asking for funding for it. <laughs> and there's yeah. something about putting money down on it or some say skin in the game or I guess legal terms, you're putting consideration down on the deal, meaning that you're really, you're really into it. So we do have some of the folks that come to us saying, well, I've been testing this and our auto auto responses how have you been testing this? Have, quote, customers or donors been giving you money or consideration for it? Or are you talking to them about it? Because those are two different results. Did you find any of that in your studies? Well, absolutely. I mean, it has to be about having that really close relationship, both before and after the consideration happens, right? So mm -hmm. it's not only about um, you know, testing those people, but it's, it's, it's involving them at every step of the process. So are you engaging them to develop the idea in the first place? And this is where a lot of organizations go wrong, because frankly, a lot of social enterprises are coming out of big university pitch competitions where students are encouraged to come up with a great idea for an organization um, when they don't necessarily have connections or lived experience with the issue that they're trying to solve. And so not everybody is going to have lived experience and that's fine if you haven't been homeless or it doesn't mean that you aren't equipped to try and solve the problem of homelessness, but you better have some interaction with homeless people um, right. if you're building a problem a program to solve their problem <laughs> right. um, and that's 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 not only true when you're providing services but it, it's true even in the development process even in those early stages of getting the program up and running Yes, yes. And I feel those same, same principles apply to either customer acquisition or donor acquisition or both. You know, that, there's still a similar process. Absolutely, absolutely. And being honest and creating those honest relationships. So getting back to, to fundraising, I mean, one of the, some of the best funders that I talk to 
will ask a, uh, an organization that comes in the door, what have you failed at? What's not working? As a, as a proxy for understanding whether they are really being honest with themselves and testing in a way that is, that is meaningful. Wow. Gosh, that's, so that's interesting. So I noticed this beautiful uh, encouragement to test and experiment in your book. Um, moving to some of the things that that data produces, it produces both, of course, you mentioned data that you can share, but it, and the storytelling. How do you find, uh, Kathleen, that the data helps give them accountability or credibility, integrity? Will you talk about um, how that helps an organization? Well, data is absolutely critical. And I, I think that the sector has a challenge of being sometimes overwhelmed by data. And so there's this kind of push-pull that really gets to the quote that Albert Einstein famously once said about not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Um, we need to be really, really thoughtful about how we're collecting data to test whether what we're doing is actually having an impact. And so interestingly, in the survey that I conducted of 250 social entrepreneurs around the country, the organizations that tended to scale more quickly said that they began measuring their impact from the start. Um, and this is critical whether you're a for-profit social entrepreneur or a nonprofit social entrepreneur, because if you want to make impact and you're not measuring your impact well then why are you doing this work in the first place right all of that said it's really hard to do this well and it's what organizations struggle most with 75 percent of nonprofits say that they do collect some form of data so this is a good start but only six percent of them think that they're making good use of that data so what nonprofits and for-profit social entrepreneurs need to be doing a better job of is really taking a step back and figuring out what are the two to three things that I need to be measuring that are indicating whether I'm making progress toward my impact. And you don't have to be a data scientist to do this well. Um, so an example is Ami Eubanks-Davis, uh, social entrepreneur who started an organization that serves college students who come from low-income backgrounds to try and help them have a better chance at getting jobs, started with a freshman class. And so she was going to have four years until she knew whether her programs were actually going to be having an impact, whether those kids were actually going to get jobs. So she didn't have four years to waste, though, <laughs> to get that impact data because she had to get funded in the meantime. And so what she did was she focused on what are the indicators that I can show to show whether I'm having progress toward those goals. So for example, she tracked the attendance of the students who participated in the program to show whether they were on track to actually graduating. She tracked whether their mentors would recommend them for a job to track whether they were on track to actually getting a job. And so really those two or three things that she was focused on were critical as opposed to trying to collect 
thousands of data points and be swimming in them and not really know what to do with them in the first place. Right. That's a great word. It's almost just as important to also have a narrative of a why of why you're not going to use the other 10,000 data points. Some of it is just it's impractical because you have to run your organization. So you have to you can't please everyone. So we, we like to say the same thing. Pick a good couple that are natural data for you, something that you can consistently get and just have some rationale about why that is what it is. You know, so that, absolutely. you know, it's okay. <laughs> and then be really rigorous about it, right? So it's not just about saying, oh, look, our attendance is on track. We're doing a great job and patting yourselves on the back and going home for the day. It's about really looking at, well, but for our intervention, would this attendance have been as good? And so, and with the Braven example, one of the really creative ways they used was to get a control group. They found students, a group of students who weren't able to participate in their program for whatever reason, the timing didn't work or other reasons. They gave them a $25 Amazon gift card, and then they tracked them as a side-by-side for the group that is participating in their services. And so, that's a way for them to say, okay, but for our program, this would have been the result. And so our students have an X percent better chance of graduating or an X percent better chance of getting a job. And so just being rigorous at every single step of the way. That's interesting. Creating a control group that's not doing it your way, if you will. That's very interesting. Great idea. Great idea. Well, let's transition a little bit because I want to hit on a couple points with you. You've got so much good stuff in this book. We want to encourage everyone to buy this book right away if it's for a nonprofit or for a for-profit. But let's talk specifically about the issue when you're introducing earned income in a nonprofit. Uh, for some of the folks that have been in the nonprofit world for a while, call it more traditional folks, this idea of earned income is super scary for them. They automatically associate it with unearned income, the ways that they can get in trouble or unrelated, mm -hmm. unrelated, I should say, income. And so let's talk about best ways to introduce that idea that you talk about in your book. Well, in the book, I frame this idea of earning income in terms of the very same testing approach that we use for products. So I think this is new. I think we all think about testing products as something that has become common in business and in the nonprofit sector. Um, but the idea of testing different revenue sources hasn't really become part of the way that we think. The common approach to earning income uh, has been to diversify your portfolio as if it's some stock kind of portfolio. Um, so you have X percent from government revenue, X percent from earned income, X percent from uh, foundation sources. And, and, and of course, all of that probably does help uh, if one of those sources goes away, you have others to draw from. But the reality is that's not how the world works that in fact the research shows that most organizations that scale to be quite big end up relying on a single fundraising source. 
So that might be, for example, this year, a club relies on membership or um, the American Red Cross relies on relief donations. But in the period leading up to, say, around three to five million dollars in revenue, it's all about testing to see what kind of natural match your organization is going to have. No, there is no one size fits all funding model for any for profit or nonprofit social enterprise. Everybody needs to figure out what is going to work for them. And so you need to be trying out different strategies, whether it's different ways to reach donors or whether it's ways to earn money from third party beneficiaries who might be engaged and invested in the results of your program. And so in the book, I talk about different strategies that people can use to engage in that testing process. Kathleen, were you surprised at some of the, some of the techniques, some of the organizations were using out there when you were doing your research? I was, uh, and, and mostly just excited and enlightened <laughs> by all of the different ways that people were being really scrappy to raise money um, because this is this is the biggest challenge in the nonprofit sector and um, and and for all social enterprises is that we have a sector that we've developed where the beneficiary of the impact of the work is different from the person who's paying for that impact yes right so in the for-profit sector you know right away whether you're succeeding because your customer is paying for it. And if they don't like the services, they don't pay and you go out of business. Right. You don't have those kinds of market forces in the nonprofit sector. So you have to be really, really scrappy about figuring out how to get people to raise money. And um, one of my favorite examples is Room to Read, which figured out that you can actually get other people to raise money for you, that it doesn't have to be a lonely endeavor. And in fact, using leadership chapters all over the world, they've been able to engage uh, six, 16 different cities and 40 different chapters to raise 20 excuse me, 40% of their, excuse me, 25% of their $50 million budget every single year. Oh my goodness. So these are the kinds of creative strategies that I have really been inspired by hearing about and which give me hope that if everybody has the opportunity to do some of this testing and to search for new sources of funding to get their ideas off the ground. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm certain you came out with some ideas of what you would do in the future too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully some applies to getting this book launched real well. <laughs> exactly. Turns out launching a book is a lot like being a social entrepreneur. <laughs> All right, right. This is great missional stuff. Well, let's transition here. Um, is there any other stories you'd like to share before I tell them where they can buy the book? Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll end with one that I think is super inspiring, which is that 
Raj Punjabi, the founder of Last Mile Health, founded his organization when he was just out of medical school. He had escaped Liberia in the Civil War and always vowed to go back. And so he went back and he started this training program for community health workers in the rural areas, individuals who had to often walk 12, 13 hours while they were sick um, to get to a doctor in the capital cities. And so he found that by training community health workers, he could serve those people and make them feel better and alleviate their pain. Um, many of them were suffering from AIDS and, and other diseases. And so his program was super effective and impactful. He got a bunch of community health workers trained all over the country. And that program was absolutely critical in 2012 when the Ebola crisis hit, because had they not had community health care workers in those rural areas, we might be living in a very different world today. Wow. Um, and so I think this is really the essence of social enterprise is how can we leverage the best talents and the best ideas to solve these really important social problems that we're facing today and to leverage and harness the talent of, of so many people to come up with better solutions to make a difference in the world. And that's what makes me most excited about this book and the work that I do. Well, my goodness, anyone who bumps into you, I'm sure, is changed. <laughs> we can hear your passion go through this. I'm excited to finish reading the book. I so appreciate you being on our podcast. Let's tell the listeners how they can uh, get your book. Well, you can uh, get my book anywhere at your favorite read, uh, book retailer, and um, you can also find it on KathleenJanis.com. KathleenJanice.com, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Kathleen, we look forward to catching up with you in the future as a follow-up, if you'd be open to that. Would love it. Thanks, Rami. <laughs> Thank you, Kathleen. That woman is full of great experiences and knowledge. <laughs> Let's state one more time where you can purchase her book. Her website is www.kathleenjanice.com. Dot com. That's K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-J-A-N-U-S.com. Or you can find it on any place that you can purchase a book. So time to close out with a song. We love music over here at the Bonfires of Social Enterprise podcast, as you've probably figured out by now. Today, we have for you artist Drew Schultz with his song, What I Do For You. All courtesy of our friends at Assemble Sound in Detroit. Until next time, keep those bonfires burning.
so proud just to call you mine. The masses are teaming for you, everybody's scheming for you. But as far as I'm concerned, they can't just wait in line. What I do for you, I pay the price, the sacrifice, just to see it through. Stand through all the storm and strife. What I do for you, every day I get to the stars above, just to see it through. You can put me through hell for your heavenly love. I do for you whatever it takes. So much things I will let it in Time go to waste But there's always someone Waiting to take my place What I do for you What I do, what I do Just to see it through Just to see 